Welcome, everybody. We are here today with a special guest, CEO of Jellyvision, Amanda Lannert. Now, I normally give great intros to everybody about their company, but today I'm not because Jellyvision to me is a unique company. It's way bigger than anyone thinks. The name is quirky. They does not tell you what you do. Amanda, can you please introduce yourself and tell us what is Jellyvision? Jellyvision is a company that makes Alex the most helpful and delightful benefits decision support software in the world. Now, let me let me break this down for you. We live in a world where Ford spends more money per car on health insurance than they do steal. And one in four of their employees would rather clean a toilet than think about their benefits. And the problem is these, these decisions are very, very expensive for the average American family. And what we do is use our entertainment and teaching background to basically sell math. We help employees understand the annualized out-of-pocket expenses for all their various benefits, help them figure out what they need uh, so they properly insure their family and, and, and get the health care they need as affordably as possible. And we do it by having a little bit of fun along the way because people can't learn if they're not paying attention and they can't learn if they're stressed. And humor is a great way to get people to pay attention and to not be stressed. So that's what we do. We help people make good decisions around their benefits and their pay. Now, this is an amazing story because Jellyvision, like, we, I got to go into the name. I got to go into what I think the name means for your culture and love to hear you explain it. But for our listeners, Jellyvision is not a small company. You guys are a big company. Uh, on your website, you list 1,500 companies as customers, helping out 18 million employees, uh, helping 18 million other of companies' employees. How about for yourself? How big is Jellyvision for those of our audience members who haven't heard of your company yet. Yeah, we are we are tens of millions of dollars in revenue. We are profitable and we have uh, just under 500 employees. 500 employees. Yep, just under. This is a monster company. So let's talk a little bit about Jellyvision. Now the name just doesn't sound like a benefits uh, guidance software company, right? Tell me about the origination of Jellyvision. And it seems kind of quirky. I feel like that plays on your culture because even in your website copy, you kind of talk about how you can make benefits decision-making kind of fun. So I just love to hear your origin stories of this company. Yeah, it is It is actually an origin story. I'll tell it briefly, but trust me, if I were going over year over year, it would take a long time because the first version of the company was actually introduced in 1989. Uh, Jellyvision 1.0 was actually a film company that made feature-length educational comedies. So to try to unpack that for you, <laughs> we brought pedagogically sound education and Hollywood production values and comedy into the classroom so that kids can learn and, uh, and pay attention. So the first company was called Learn Television with the idea of it being you know, educational uh, content. And very quickly, our founder got frustrated by the passive medium of film. He didn't want to broadcast at kids. He wanted to engage each learner one-on-one in a much more interactive, iterative way. And as he went from sort of broadcast to interactivity, the company's name evolved from Learn Television to Jelly Vision with the idea it's more sort of amoeba-like and responsive and sticky and sweet. And our first uh, foray into interactivity was an educational software series that covered 450 works of young adult literature before we ultimately landed in gaming where we learned how to entertain. So we went from learning how to teach people to learning how to entertain. And the company... What's the time span on that? So that starts in 1989. You pivot... Fully a game company by 1996, making virtual game show hosts for games like You Don't Know Jack and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. When the CD-ROM market died in 2000, so too did our aspirations around virtual game show hosts. 
And the company I run today, the Jelly Vision Lab, a spawn of that gaming company uh, was launched. And the Jelly Vision Lab was uh, founded not to create virtual game show hosts, but to create virtual advisors to go to where there's furrowed brow, where people are trying to do something complicated and boring, but important online. And we'd make software that talks you through it. So the Jelly Vision Lab was designed to incubate all kinds of different software solutions that solved problems for confused users online. And until we finally landed on something called Alex. Alex is not the first time we tried to productize and scale what we do, it's just the first time it worked. And where Alex goes is into benefits to help employees uh, better understand and appreciate their benefits. I wanna walk back to that moment. Um, according to my information, you were, you've been with Jelly Vision since 2001. Correct. So at that point, you've got the virtual hosts. You've just decided, you know, just a year ago that the gaming virtual games host is probably not going to be your, your bread and butter in the future. And you've developed this guide, the host of something to help guide you through something challenging. Did right away, was it self-evident that benefits would be where, where your market was going to be? Or how did you, I guess, how did you find that market? Yeah, and I'll give you the real story. And it's, it's unfortunately not as lovely as you just framed it up. I, it I joined is. the gaming company. No, I joined the gaming company at the height of the You Don't Know Jack gaming days. And I was here for the implosion of the CD-ROM market that obviously also imploded our business. Uh, and I had to uh, be part of the company where we had layoffs. And I wrote a severance letter from myself to myself. I actually laid myself off. And while I was licking my wounds and trying to figure out how I would ever get employed again, our founder raised a Series A, technically a seed round, but we called it a Series A, to reboot the company, not as virtual game show hosts, but virtual advisors. So I rejoined when he finally had capital, when we had a new mission, new lease on life, new financing, uh, and the plan to really build business-to-business -business software. So I come back with new perspective, fire in the belly, ready to run against this new business-to-business -business play. And then we proceed to spend the better part of a decade, a good seven and a half years, going sideways. <laughs> not really getting traction, not really growing, but managing to just not run out of money, despite a few more near-death experiences. So a lot of you know what's great about Jelly Vision today, for example, our culture, we spent a very long time as a very small company incubating what culture meant, how we get stuff done. We were not a company that was an overnight success. I truly don't resent those who are, but that's just not our story, not our experience, not, not, not the way it happened for Jelly Vision. So I joined the gaming company, which was amazing until it wasn't, and then rejoined this company, which took us a long time to get going. But our whole thesis was what's complicated, what's boring, and what's financially important? Benefits we should have found earlier, but we were very, very assisted by the Affordable Care Act, which did a couple of things. One, it made employers care about high deductible plans because of the Cadillac tax that would have really taxed employers who only had very expensive premium plans. And the second thing the Affordable Care Act did, Obamacare, is it had an employer mandate that they had to start talking to their employees about benefits. And given that we made employee benefits software, we did that job very well for a number of companies. So it was a little bit of a finally right time at right place, after not being at the right time at the right place for the first seven and a half years of the business. So I want to take, I want to walk back just one step before we move forward in that. So you, you have a really compelling story in the fact that you, of course, wrote your own layoff letter, like you laid yourself off, but what gave you that conviction, I guess, to come back? Because a lot of people would have like battle wounds, you know, like, Hey, this is, this didn't work out for me. I need to do something different. 
what was that conviction or what was that feeling? Did you have a feeling or was it more like, hey, at least someone's going to hire me. I want to work. So let me give you a little bit of the perspective of when I came back. It was January 1, 2002. It was right after 9-11 had happened, right after the bubble had burst. I was happy just to have a job. Gotcha. Uh, so truly, it, truly, it was a matter of like not being employable elsewhere. And then I love startups. I love the people I work with. I love the innovation and creativity of Jelly Vision. So it's not like it's a bad gig, but I, but I rejoined because I could. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to leave in the first place. Uh, and I was really excited to have another chance to try to, to, try to get it right. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, sometimes that's, sometimes that's what we need, right? Just one more chance to, to make it work. And it sounds like the company, you know, off of one big bet, got one more chance. You mentioned before the Affordable Care Act changed things, but here you are going forward. Now, I got to ask, what were those first days like? Because you kind of said you were moving sideways for a little bit, right? So 2001 yeah. to 2007, you're moving a little sideways. 2008, President Obama comes into office. Affordable Care Act's going to get passed not too long after that. How did you start seeing, what did the uptick look like? How did you know you guys were finally on the right track for maybe explosive growth? I think if you say, what was the turning point where I felt like we finally had a business that could scale? I would say it was Andy Rosa. And you're like, what's Andy Rosa? Yeah, what's Andy and Rosa? my answer is, it's who? It's a who. Uh, <laughs> when we, we one of our first uh, customers was Comcast, which is unusual to land such a jumbo employer. But they were so delighted with the software and came back and said, you know, it's not just educating people, it's actually changing behavior where our employees are doing things in their interest that they, we have not been able to get them to do. Like you've, you've changed employee behavior for the better. Andy Rosa was the VP of benefits at Comcast who basically went on the road as a referenceable customer, an evangelist, in fact, where he brought a tremendous amount of enterprise credibility to this teeny little startup. He was the most effusively positive uh, uh, customer we could have. And it, it absolutely was a tipping point. When you, when you do a good job for a company as important as a Comcast and they vouch for you, it created a lot less risk for other companies to join in. And then we knew we reached traction by you know, the way everybody does, which we were able to sell the same thing repeatedly to satisfied customers uh, in a way that made us money. And after not doing that for so long, it was a really great day when we finally said, Hey, there, there's something here. This business is taking off. We're getting customers. People are saying yes. It was it was not a day we took lightly. And how about your role during this process? Uh, because at this point, uh, you were not the CEO yet, but you are growing fast. What was your role as as this company was now hitting its stride? Yeah, the the company was really run in a partnership between the founder, who was the original CEO, and me, where he was the the creative guy, the visionary, the, the product developer, and I was the suit. So it was my, my job to take his, his machinations to market. And that <laughs> means building an engine for distribution, building an engine for implementation, building the engine to run a company underneath the people who are doing you know, sales and implementation. Uh, but he was, he was very much the, the, the visionary. And a lot of what's best about Jelly Vision today is in fact what's best about Harry, uh, even though he's been, you know, retired from the business for a couple of years and is in fact working on uh, yet another startup. But I always, I always tell founders, you've got to put your best foot forward. It really, it really matters. You leave a lasting legacy uh, long after you're gone in terms of the way people treat each other and what's valued and, and how, how companies get things done. That, that founder DNA lasts. No, that's amazing. And so you've learned the lessons from him. You're growing the business. 
take me through a little bit about what, what you felt like. Did you feel like any, did you ever feel like you had imposter syndrome? Like you didn't really know what you were doing. I'm, I'm sure most people do when they, when they reach this level of success, you're selling the, you're selling Alex or the services over and over again. Tell me how you're feeling as, as now you're in scale mode. Yeah. It's like imposter syndrome only every day. Uh, and I, I, I just would say, I would say for, for people like truly, 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 it's not what you know, it's what you can figure out. I think being a self-adaptive learner who's not intimidated by like not having a clear blueprint is going to be about 50% of the battle uh, with AI now in the workplace. It's like, can you figure stuff out? And luckily, I am really good at the Google. Uh, there's not much I, I haven't Googled, like how to write a business plan, how to write core values, how to raise $20 million in venture capital, all of that stuff. You know, I always start first with the Google and see, and see what you can find online. Then I start to develop a thesis. Then I start to you know, selectively network and make sure I'm on the right track using my trusted mentors. But at so much of, of business is, can you look for patterns? Can you study? other companies and other successes by reading and, and following blogs and, and tracking, you know, the CEOs that you really respect. And then it's just like getting through the day without losing your sense of humor because it's an absolute grind. I, it, there's almost never a day when you're in early, you know, early stage where you're like, today was a good day. I got stuff done. You're just always aware of what else could be done. So it's important to work with kind people who have excellent senses of humor and don't forget to snack. But it was, uh, it was every day uh, hanging on. I actually have like a little metaphor to think about it. I think startups are a lot like rocket ships where people go to Cape Canaveral and sit on top of mobile homes to watch rocket ships take off because they're really cool, right? It's very audacious to try to put a ship into space. Uh, so it's a spectator sport and sort of there's a little spectator sport around startups. But what people fail to realize is the perspective of the astronaut. You have people screaming into your ears. You're wearing 50 to 60 pounds of gear, and you have a nuclear-sized explosion 50 feet from your head. I think that sentiment is very much what startup people, not just founders, but everybody feels like you're always hanging on by your fingertips. People on the outside look in and say it's cool, but it really is pretty uncomfortable. A lot of the times where you think you're about to win, and you think you're about to die, and that happens five minutes apart. <laughs> right? It's like a five minute swing between you're going to take over the world or you're utterly going to fail. And, and the highs and lows of being, you know, in a, in a startup are really, really profound. I would say as you grow, you still have the high highs and low lows, but they take pace over the course of, you know, a week and <laughs> not, not, not five minutes. So it, <laughs> it, it, it's still profoundly highs and lows and you still profoundly have imposter syndrome and you're still trying to just figure it out. But the, the frenetic pace definitely slows with scale. So that's, that's phenomenal the way you described it. Cause yeah, I, I was thinking about that, what you just said and the constant threat of like, Oh, could this potentially blow up? You know? <laughs> Cause, and the answer is yes, it could yeah. potentially blow up all the time. <laughs> yes. It always could possibly blow up. That's, that's how it feels. So there's two things I want to hit on with you that I think you touched a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about the first thing is the culture side, because you kind of mentioned and have used the words fun, quirk, uh, good people. A couple times, I feel like Jelly Vision as a brand, the name already lightens the mood a little bit. I think from more like a you know like the copy on your website obviously sounds a lot different than you know like a legal law firm, right? Like it's like very fun in my opinion. You've given your product a human name. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, tell me a little bit about how do you keep that culture? Does it? What does it mean to you? How do you recruit for it? 
and how does that play a role in the, I guess the products and services you create? Yeah, it really has a lot to do with our roots in gaming and the fact that we made all of our money for a number of years from a game that was best known for snarky pop culture riffs and <laughs> fart sound effects. And I mean that literally, I'm not trying to be inappropriate, but we had a lot of fart sound effects in You Don't Know Jack days. So for sure, you know, humor, humor was both our business and our pastime. Um, and, and one of our core values is don't be boring. And it's not just about amusing each other at work, even though we do amuse each other at work. It's about being effective. It's about getting people's attention and maintaining attention so that you can impact behavior and impact decisions. And everything that is sort of we use to sort of break through and stand out in you don't know Jack days or, or who wants to be a millionaire days, we apply in the world of benefits just with a lot more respect for the individual because they're not you know, entertaining themselves on a Friday night. They're making really important investment decisions and financial decisions for themselves and their family. And so why, why do we call our product after a human name? Because we're trying to, in fact, humanize a very complicated, ornery decision. Like there is no other industry where you can take a product Name it based on its most terrifying feature and expect it to be successful. But here you go. We have this thing called the high deductible plan. No one even thought to call it the low premium plan. It's <laughs> literally called high deductible plan. And then you have like an FSA and an HSA change one little letter and you go from a use it or lose it pro product, FSAs, to a triple tax advantage long-term savings vehicle that is not a health spending account. It's a health savings account. It's totally opposite. So nothing is really working for us in this industry. Everything is complicated. And we thought this is an area where someone just wants someone to talk them through it. No, no, I want to hit on that because that's a great point. Because one of the things that you'll notice about like, or I've been a part of big HR companies is that they don't really want to guide you down your choice making because they don't, of course, they're, uh, they're afraid of you making the wrong choice. But it sounds like you're pretty bold. Like you're, you're helping people make choices. Is that, is that accurate? No matter how much companies spend on benefits education, the reality is if you really seek and tell the truth with kindness and respect, which again is another one of our core values, no one wants an education or a PhD in benefits. <laughs> they want their benefits to work for them. They don't want to overpay. They want to get care when they need it. And they want to do it as quickly as possible so they can get back to their real lives. So our, our whole ethos is we're not here to like make you, you know, have a, a master's degree in understanding high deductible plans. We want you to understand your life. We want you to understand your needs. We want you to understand, you know, your attitudes towards risk and other things that you can control. And then based on us understanding that, we're going to help you understand how the plans will work best for you, uh, show you how they work. We, we, we're not, you know, a fiduciary making specific do this recommendation and we're not moving people's money. But we do want to make it as clear as possible to understand how what you've told us factors into each of your decisions, how, how things are good based on what you said, where they're you know, less advantageous based on what you said, so that you can make good, smart, informed decisions and then get on with your life, which is what people want to do. <laughs> we've actually had, you know, from personal experience, we've actually had team members that have actually missed like enrollment periods because the fact that it was so, uh, I guess, you know, the decisions were so difficult or difficult to understand where, you know, we as a company didn't have the resources or even the knowledge maybe to explain it. We would have to be like, Hey, talk to the, uh, talk to the person from the insurance company, which is means you're calling into a phone system that, you know, never picks up or <laughs> it was just always a challenge. I mean, you don't think of it as, well, I never thought of it as something that was a market to be solved. I don't know why, because it just always felt like that's the way things go. But what, you know, you mentioned Andy Rosa, right? He obviously experienced a groundbreaking thing. 
Tell me about what did your customers feel like? What was actually changing in their business that let them be like, okay, this is actually a huge benefit. Like, were they able to track, for example, hours saved or like, I guess, service calls not made or what was their metric that let them know, oh my goodness, this is actually helping us. All of the above. We can prove that employees who talk to Alex behave differently than employees who don't. We see so much more and is shifting to less expensive plans. We see more opening and investing into HSAs. Employees who talk to Alex defer 11.2% of their salary into 401ks. Fidelity gets 8%. Vanguard gets 6%. So it's just, it, we can simply prove a before and after that people do things that are actually in their own financial interest after talking to Alex. Uh, and by doing that, by helping people make good uh, financial decisions, we save them money and create tax advantages for them that also repeat for employers. So we are reducing the cost of healthcare for employers and employees alike. Wow. I want to go back to something else you said about the humanistic things. Like really Jelly Vision is, is probably first and foremost an experienced company. Our algorithm may not spit out recommendations or highlight plans in a way that's very, very different from other tools on the market. But the experience that we take a user through the way we build trust, we ask simple questions, we make it very easy to make choices, never too many choices on a screen. Our language, the simplicity, the, the trust, the humor. We're building an experience that connects with users and gets them to trust us so they feel more confident and make better decisions. So it really is the experience by which we take a user up to, to highlight the plans that, that ultimately drives effects. But we bring that sort of experience mentality to the way we build our business. So we create experiences for customers where we try to not be boring and we try to be helpful and we try to keep, you know, sort of this romantic notion alive of that was genuinely caring about you and your success. We also bring that to the way we hire and onboard and retain employees, really trying to be delightful, trying to be truthful, but never boring, being helpful. All of those values that we talk about are, are manifest in every kind of experience that we create for every different constituent, not just our software, but in every experience we, we interact with. I want to touch on that a little bit on the recruiting front. Obviously, you're building artificial intelligence engines. You're handling very serious subjects that you have to be knowledgeable in with benefits. So how are you recruiting? Because your name doesn't really tell what the story. Obviously, tech talent is very, very competitive. Tell me how you recruit. Tell me how, like, what is the reaction typically when you first reach out or someone reach, finds you? Do they know what they're getting into? Or I'd like to hear a little bit about how that is, how you get like the next wave of talent into, into the doors. Yeah, because the talent market is so tight and because our business needs, like when you need to hire 100 people in, in 60 days or whatever we pulled off this year, <laughs> your strategies change. And we used to just write really lengthy, earnest, specific job descriptions that wouldn't just tell you what the job is, but would tell you who we are and how we like to think. Uh, we are a writing company. We care about you know written, thoughtful communication and documentation. So our job descriptions were three to four pages long. If you couldn't get to the end where we said, and we'd like you to write back to us in a cover letter, if you didn't get to that part, you're not one of ours. Like you self-select out. And it, so we had all these sort of ways of like letting people who would like our culture and the way we work lean in. And getting people who wouldn't like our culture, who wouldn't sweat the details, wouldn't cross the T's and dot the I's, to just quickly 
self-select out with their their behavior, not following the process, and so on. I want to expand my job descriptions right now. That, that story you just told me, I'm like, hey, let's let's expand them because we're a writing company too. But sorry to interrupt. Go on. <laughs> well, yeah. So, like, what is a job description? But the most important marketing a, a, a company ever does, where you're asking a talented person to give you the vast majority of their waking hours. Why does it become this totally? you know, a reductive wreck with like, we need a can-do attitude. Like, really? <laughs> You're really going to do that? We need 20 this years is, experience is, in AI. It's like, there is no such thing. The most forgotten fact in business, according to Chip Connolly, the most forgotten fact in business is that we're all human. And a lot of what we try to do is bring just human understanding and perspective to experience instead of treating everything like a business process. And I'll give you just a couple quick examples about how we do this in recruiting. There is a moment after you sign our job offer and you've accepted the gig where you have a mix of excitement and fear because you just made a really big life decision and you hope you didn't, you know, just tank your career. The moment that we know that you've accepted the position, everyone at Jelly Vision that you met, literally everyone, sends you an email saying, we are so excited to have you join. And it's just, you know, trying to provide confidence and support and enthusiasm and momentum for people who might be feeling a little trepidation and the way that matters most, which is your colleagues. They are the single greatest, you know, determiner of whether you like your job or whether you quit. And, and we always try to bring this like humanistic, you know, view of really what is going on with a person. What are they going through? Empathy, empathy, empathy. So then we can curate experiences that relieve pain, uh, maximize opportunity and make people's lives better. Another example of this is at the end of your first day. Um, when we were small, we used to do you know, new hire welcomes. We would introduce someone to the company at a company meeting. As we've gotten bigger, the way we celebrate new people and thank them for the trust they're putting into the company has fundamentally changed. Uh, because there are so many people and we can have you know, 40 people start in a two-week period, at the end of your first day, as you're trying to sneak away, uh, probably are hungry, need to pee, and are <laughs> exhausted from the fire hose to the face, and you just want to slink away because you've gone from the height of your power at your last job to the bottom of your power at Jelly Vision, and you want to let your manager actually get some real work done. So you say, all right, I'm going to take off. You stand up, and somebody says, first day, and everyone stops what they're doing, comes outside, and gives you a standing ovation all the way out the building. It is unnerving and wonderful and just a great way where people can participate, even if it's a stranger and you don't know who it is, you are participating in the gratitude we show people for the trust they put into Jelly Vision. And it is all about using empathy. How do you feel at that moment? Potentially pretty tired, pretty low. How do you feel after 400 people give you a standing ovation? Pretty darn good. Uh, and so that humanity, like really curating humanistic moments, really thinking through authentically, what is the person across the screen feeling, thinking, worrying about? What does our customer care about? What do fellow colleagues care about? Uh, we create more authentic and more human and ultimately more successful experiences because we don't forget that at the end of the day, we're all humans. Companies don't buy from companies. People buy from people. Companies don't innovate. People innovate. And Employees don't quit companies, people quit their bosses. And when you don't get that twisted, you start to do things like understanding job descriptions aren't wrecks. They're a chance for you to tell your story about who you are and how you like to work. So talented people who would dig it, lean in. I mean, it's just that's sort of the ethos of like, not just how we hire, it's our software, everything. Everything is in that experience of trying to humanize and simplify and be real and drive meaningful connections. No, that is awesome. And that, I guess that's what's led you to consistently be one of uh, top 10 best places to work in the city of Chicago. 
Yeah, well, I'll just be real straight about that. <laughs> we're, we're an employer of choice because we have employees of choice. The, the caliber and kindness and conscientiousness of pretty nerd, a lot of nerds work here. The people who work here really, really is insane. And I, I, think, I think it's, you know, something that's sort of perpetuated by CEOs that CEOs own culture. It's just not true. Culture is absolutely a team sport. And Jelly Vision's culture is right now being evolved in conference rooms by people I haven't yet met. And it is like the single most important thing that leadership at any company can do to maintain, improve, protect, whatever it might be, ruin culture, is in who you hire and who you fire and don't fire. The team, the, the curation of the team is the most critical job in terms of having a great culture. It's not about like fighting for rituals because rituals change. It's not about codifying the perfect values because sometimes things go without being said. It is, it is about having a very high bar and a collective ethos uh, in your people. And, and that's how culture sort of becomes itself. Like we did, I didn't create the clap out. Somebody else created the clap out. And it's just, it's just proof that like really great, important cultural moments can be created anywhere. No, I love that. I mean, I think for myself, when I started getting into leadership positions, people would say things like that, but you really wouldn't understand it. But then someone once pointed out to me like the greatest analogy or analogy in comp- comparison to a business is actually a sports team. That's why sports teams with the best players sometimes don't win, like because they can't unify in a common ethos or culture for whatever reason and teams that have that can actually win with lesser players uh it's the same thing that you see in businesses so i gotta ask you know you kind of mentioned it yourself there's team members you don't have i mean excuse me haven't met your company's expanding you mentioned before that you just hired 60 people in what sounds like a sprint type of (laughs) environment where you're adding onboarding quite a bit your company's growing you mentioned that it's the people, but there's certainly somewhat there's things you have to care about, right? As as the CEO, there's things you have to care about that you're constantly or that are your focuses. So where are your focuses today? The, the company's obviously different than when you started. You're now at scaling nicely, you added 60 people. Where do you focus your time and energy today? Because obviously you can't do everything. Yeah, I, I write myself a job description every year, and I probably should do it you know, on a six month basis because scale really does change. But I think I'm at the stage right now of growth where I have two fundamental jobs. One, I take care of the people so they can take care of everything else. And that's largely my leadership team. So much of my job is having an aligned, effective, talented leadership team. And then they take care of every specific function. So I don't get to be the rock star bringing in the deals anymore. That is not where I spend my time. I spend my time making this a place where other people can be the rock star bringing in deals. The second job besides taking care of the people so they can take care of everything else is making sure we don't run out of money. So I spend <laughs> my time. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's like making sure we have access to capital. So if we want to buy a company or do something interesting that we have runway for, it's making sure we're profitable so we can sort of maintain autonomy and in our vision and destiny. Um, I do spend a lot of time with uh, partners working on sort of like multiplier deals. Yep. I do spend a ton of time uh, with customers and, and influencers trying to figure out where the hockey puck is going so I can inform our product teams so we make the best possible products. But really, I think those are the two, the two real jobs that, that I focus on. And uh, great news is there are some just really talented people that have chosen to hang their hat at uh, Jelly Vision. What you just said about the money situation, I think I read, um, I don't know, it was a venture capitalist. I can't remember who I read, but they recently said like, you know, once you reach a certain number, you're more likely to 
uh, go out of business due to hubris than you are to market changes by <laughs> where you just make bad decisions and overconfident. So like, I love that second phase, like protect the money, make sure you can invest and bet on growth. Yeah, I, the, our board says uh, companies at this stage more often die of indigestion than starvation, right. which means you do too much, you get too bloated, you stop doing anything well, right? And you've really got to know what, what are the critical levers that matter and what would just be nice to do and don't get bloated and don't get slow by doing all the nice to haves, like be really, really good about prioritizing, using no as a blunt force weapon to create focus and then executing what matters with excellence. It's easy to say and shockingly hard to do year over year. Tell me what you think in regards to Jellyvision's future. Like let's say in the next five years, do you have any predictions of where your company is gonna go? What's the next new marketplace frontiers you're gonna to try to take on? Tell me what you think your company looks like in the next five years. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna be a different company. I think we're gonna uh, evolve from benefits picking to something very, very different. You see, we sit at the forefront of open enrollment. And the first thing we did was help explain high deductible plans. And now we're helping explain HSAs. But next we're gonna help uh, really navigate between HSAs, 401ks, student loan payment. What do you do with all these things that your employer makes available to you, particularly when you don't have enough money to do them all just right? really helping sort of robo for the rest of us, helping employees make good financial decisions at the intersection of health and wealth, particularly for people who have neither. Jelly Vision will be uh, more squarely in robo over, you know, sort of the gross to net pay financial decisions and will be a data company where we help employers better understand and take care of their employees. So let me back, uh, back up for a second on that gross to net pay. There is a difference between when you're told your salary and what you actually get in your take-home pay. And money goes to all these weird places like taxes and benefits, 401k, and people aren't very clear on where that money is going. And we think that's actually the place where you can start to nudge people into better financial decisions than trying to create a budgeting tool and spending money to get somebody to wake up on Tuesday and decide today's the day I take control of my take-home pay. We think working with employers who in you know, the post-pension world are really how employees pay for retirement, working with them to sort of optimize getting the right dollars nudged into long-term vehicles. So people are thinking about retirement, not today, and you know, kale, not bacon cheeseburgers, doing a little bit of that medicine. It's gonna happen <laughs> in the gross to net pay arena before people get their take-home pay. Uh, so we, we are building Robo for the rest of us Robo for people who are living paycheck to paycheck and just a little beyond it so they can make great financial decisions that get them more ready for retirement, help them not waste money on benefits, and get them into a better position uh, financially. We're sitting right now, 60% of Americans do not have access to $600 in cash, but one out of four American families are now in a high deductible plan. That spells financial ruin if we cannot get people to have a little bit more in savings to be able to afford healthcare if they cannot get ready for retirement. Like we're at a tipping point and we think we think Alex can help. No, that's amazing. I wonder, do you, do you think that'll actually help with retention? Because I'm thinking about how we hear about and read about how there's a whole new wave of people who want a job hop, right? They want a job hop for nominal raises, I'd say. But if you're in a great place working, it might change your perspective or if you're better with your money, it might change your perspective on is it worth going to a new job for $5,000 or $6,000 a year, which nets to just $500 a month. Like, is that actually worth it? Or am I just better off staying? Do you think those decisions will help overall with retention where people aren't, I guess, job, job hopping for like little small incremental salary jumps? 
Yeah, I like to. I would say, do I think it will help? It helps with retention. I do, but really, it, it, we want to we want to make you know promises that we can back up with data, and we have not been able to you know definitively correlate use of Alex with longer employee retention. Okay, this is this is a very very fluid environment. We have historically low unemployment rates. Like it's never been this low without preceding a war. Like it's just, there's never been such low unemployment and accordingly voluntary turnover is at record highs. Do I think, you know, benefits are an important part of why people stay? Yes. in as much as they make you think your employer cares about you and invests in you and, and wants you to lead your life safely and with purpose. Like that's what benefits are. It's does your employer care about you? You know, will Alex help compensate for a really terrible boss? Probably not. But in terms of helping employees demystify these massive investments employers are making in their people and helping them feel appreciated, yeah, I, I know we help with that. That's awesome. Now, I want to get into a little bit about, I think our audience always wants to learn a little bit about our guests as well. I have some couple factoids of, of, about you, and I'd love to hear if uh, you know these are actually true, not true, little background story, all fun factoids, nothing crazy. <laughs> I'm like, hit me. Let's do it. Is it true you named your cat dog? I did, but I did it. I did it. One, because I thought I was funny. Sorry about that. And two, because he was a purebred flame point Himalayan cat, which is about the bougiest cat you can get. And he came with papers and the papers called him like Prince, Regent, something, 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 something. And I just thought, that's the craziest thing to name a, a, you know, a, a mammal, this kind of name. So they said, what do you want to name it? And I just wrote dog <laughs> on the papers to sort of be subversive about my own embarrassment at buying a very, very bougie cat. Uh, so that's, that's what it was. It, it, it's, it's, it's dumb. Sorry about it. I did it. It's true. All right. That's I, my, I now have a dog. The dog's name is Lola. You know, there you go. Oh, you didn't, you didn't continue the trend. You didn't name your dog. No, I did animal? not name the dog cat. I named the dog Lola. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. And then also I have a little factoid that you're a climber. Is that right? That you've climbed and ascended some of the most famous mountains. That, that is, I haven't done it, you know, in the last five years, but uh, for sure, um, mountain climbing has been an important part of my life and, and will be again. My husband and I always say that we, we climbed Kilimanjaro for our honeymoon. We will climb again for our 25th anniversary in four years. We will do it with all of our children in tow. And I always say like, that is such a monumental you know, full circle 25 years later that I'll stay married to him until that moment. And after that, all bets are off. I, you know, I so really like the guy, but just like mountain climbing is so physically exhausting, so extraordinarily beautiful. It's such hard work and it makes you like, I come back, I appreciate everything like ice cubes and fabric softener and I feel so much more fit and it's just a sense of accomplishment. I really, you can, you can safely mountain climb. You can, you can walk all the way to the tippy top of a mountain like Rainier. So it's not a dangerous technical climb. And it really is one of the most satisfying and beautiful and physically challenging things that I've ever loved doing. So I'm into, I love outdoors and surfing is my personal hobby. So I'm curious if you have the same perspective. It sounds like you do, but do you, it sounds like you also find it cathartic where you feel I've been at the top of a volcano before looking down into the clouds and felt like, man, you know, a lot of things I think that matter a ton, they don't matter that much. It just feels refreshing. Totally. And I, I get, I get very grateful. I come back very grateful and uh, humbled and, and healthier. And I love being outside very similar, like respect for the mountains, respect for the outdoors, respect for trees. You know, all, all those things are very uh, grounding. And you kind of be like, man, the stuff I get, you know, twisted over, 
does not matter. It doesn't matter uh, as much. And it's just great perspective, very healthy perspective to be with nature. All right, listen, if your team members are listening, they now need to know that they need to, if there's a gift to give Amanda, just let her go climbing, find a way to get her up on a mountain. She's going to come back super happy. That's right. True (laughs) statement. True statement. Awesome. Well, Amanda, thanks for joining us today on Mission Daily. Did you have fun? I did. I thank you so much for the opportunity. I really, I really appreciate it. Awesome. You know, we always love hearing tech founders, especially, you know, I think a lot of the coverage is towards the companies that are VC backed or high growth, fast growth, like doing all these crazy things in the news, but like lost in the shuffle is just like, there's a lot of great companies building great products and services that they're not raising a ton of money. And like, we're losing sight of who those people are and uh, doing great things. So I appreciate you being on the show. Wonderful. Appreciate it. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.